This is episode 84 of the 99 Forever podcast. I'm Eric Friesen, and my guest tonight is making his sixth appearance on the podcast. He's the host of 97 Octane Hockey and a contributor to heavyhockey.com, Mike Dursa. Dursa, how's your long weekend going? Oh, it's beautiful so far. The weather is nice. Can't complain. Uh, weather's got a win in Dallas yesterday, so life is good. Yeah, I, I totally agree with all that. And uh, this is the second episode we've now recorded together in less than a week. So always great chatting with uh, you, Kirk, and Bob. So I'm glad you could uh, get back on my show, too. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, man, of course. And uh, as I just mentioned off the top, this is episode 84. And of course, the Edmonton Oilers won their first Stanley Cup in 1984, which we're approaching the 40th anniversary of this spring. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't born at the time, but uh, I just thought I'd start by asking you tonight, what memories, if any, you have from the Oilers' first Cup victory in 1984? Honestly, I think the only thing that's really in my head is that call with a few seconds left to go. Uh, there's a new bunch on the block by name. The Edmonton Oilers have just won the Stanley Cup. I think that's pretty much my only memory. I think I was about eight years old when we won the first one. So, Do you remember just even beyond actually watching any, what the reaction was to people around you? Because I'm, I'm guessing you were surrounded by a lot of Oilers fans as well. Well, uh, when that went down, my, my dad and my Uncle Jim... Uh, we're we're at the that game, um, or, oh, they or were sorry, at the, the clinching game. I, I, I'm not sure if it was the clincher, but they were at one of the games in, in that series. Um, my dad used to be friends with Bill Toelli, um from Molson Breweries, and and uh, kind of backdoored their way into that into one of the games in the series. But I'm I can't I was too little. I don't remember which one, but I remember them being a part of all that, and that's. That's probably really the only, uh, that and the call from the last thing are, are really about the only things that are kind of in my mind. Uh, what is the first of the Oilers Cup wins that you really have strong memories of then? Hmm. Yeah, um, probably Peter Klima coming off the bench to win in, in overtime. Um, so more of the early 90s uh, than, than the 80s Cups. Um. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, Wayne Wayne dancing through people, I think, is is kind of in there. Um, yeah, Wayne, Wayne and Yari doing their thing. And, and yeah, I mean, the 1990 Cup, I think I was uh, 14 by then. So that's, that's, you know, doing it without Wayne. Um, yeah. That's kind of more in, in my memory banks. And yeah. Well, I think that just shows anyone that's, you know, your age or younger wouldn't have too many memories of uh, the dynasty years anyway. So uh, let's hope that uh, we can start putting together a, a new championship run uh, this year and, and create some new memories for the, the current generation of Oilers fans. Yeah, I mean, my my sons really don't have any, um, any really cup memories. Like uh, my oldest was basically six years old in 2006 so there's not really much much there for him so yeah i you know selfishly i want a six cup for me but <laughs> of course i, I, I want to see it through their eyes too you know so i yeah i hope uh this season ends the right way 
Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And uh, I mean, at least they've been treated to some great years with McDavid because um, for your for your younger kids anyway, like they probably don't know a world without Connor McDavid playing for the Edmonton Oilers. Yeah, I mean, my youngest is 16. And it's funny, when he was four years old, his favorite player was number four, Taylor Hall. And, uh, you know, I was at, I might have told you this story before, but we were, we were at a game and um, he's like, Dad, I see Taylor Hall. And it was right after I think he got stepped on. Oh. And, and he was up in the press box. And I'm like, no, no, he's not on the bench. bench. And Max points up to the catwalk. No, up there. And oh. sure enough, and sure enough, he saw him up on the catwalk. Had a good eye there for the the healthy scratch, or I guess not healthy scratches, just the yeah the the press box players that night. Yeah. And uh, you posted some pictures on Twitter the other night at the outdoor rink, and uh, for me, my favorite thing to do in the winter is to play some shinny, or even just go for a skate at the outdoor rink or on the pond. Uh, do you still enjoy getting out there as much as you did as when you were growing up? And uh, how are you feeling going into the heavy hockey showdown next weekend? <laughs> you, you know, I don't get on the ice as much as, as what I did growing up. So I might even have a deeper appreciation for it now. It's, uh, I don't know, like I was a multi-sport athlete growing up. But uh, for me, being on, on the ice is always kind of that freeing, uh, magical kid at Christmas kind of feeling. So I... Uh, I definitely enjoy it still. Yeah, I know you're also uh, a big basketball fan and uh, played the game too. So I, I I know the way that you speak about it and even talking about uh, being a, a Bulls fan back in the 90s and everything, you've got a affinity for it for sure. But uh, uh, when, when you compare just being on the court and shooting around compared to uh, being out there on the ice, uh, do, you still, uh, do you still take uh, playing a little shinny over it? Oh man, um, basketball is, is, you know, running and, and, um, I think when you get older, you don't have the affinity to run as much anymore. So <laughs> <laughs> the fact that, you know, you can get on the ice and, and glide a little the, bit, you can glide a little bit and, and uh, you know, if you put your head down, you, you can skate, uh, still pretty well and get up and down the ice, uh, with a little bit more speed. It seems like it's a, a bit of a chore for me to run real fast for a long period of time. So uh, you know, last night I was on the ice with a bunch of kids and stuff, and and I, you know, before I knew it, two hours were gone, and I I felt fine, and uh, you know, no time to go off and sit on the bench and and catch a breath. So it was like full shinny, uh, <laughs> just go, and and a few of the kids actually were probably bantam sort of midget age, so it was kind of a little bit up and down. So I tried to hit the post and that kind of stuff because there's no goalies, and yeah, it was a good time. I needed it. I like the tweet. Yeah. I felt, I, I felt it a little bit today. <laughs> I like the tweet that you had, though, um, just showing uh, the the outdoor rink at sunset. And you said, is there anything more Canadian than this? And then uh, followed up with another pic shortly thereafter with uh, sticks in the middle. And if there yeah. is anything more Canadian, that's it. Yeah. The only thing that would have been more Canadian was having a beaver there, probably a mostly <laughs> Canadian beer and being at Lake Louise. But, you know. Yeah, no, but still, uh, that's awesome, man. And uh, we we will be, uh, like I said, playing in the heavy hockey showdown next week. And so really looking forward to seeing you again and uh, hopefully uh, take home another uh, championship. Yeah, I'm going to have Michael and and, uh, Ryan Lotzberg on the the show tomorrow. And um, 
Yeah, I think one more uh, time to have a beer out of the out of the trophy. Yeah, for sure. I, I guess you've been holding it for the past year then. It's been in my possession, yeah. The uh, Adam Zielinski Memorial Cup, and uh, hopefully, uh, like I said, we'll be lifting it <laughs> one more time next weekend. And um, yeah, I'm just really looking forward to getting back to Edmonton. Uh, it's going to be great to play in this event for the, the fourth time. And uh, I'll also be seeing you at the Battle of Alberta on Saturday night. But uh, before we look too far ahead, uh, let's talk about how the Oilers have performed coming out of the bye week. And as is often the case on this show, I want to start by talking about Connor McDavid tonight. Since being crowned the first ever NHL All-Star Skills Champion a couple weeks ago, McDavid has been on an absolute tear offensively. McDavid has 14 points in six games so far this month, including 10 assists in his last three contests, which should earn him NHL First Star of the Week honors tomorrow. Uh, Dursa, McDavid tallied a career-high six assists in an 8-4 win over the Detroit Red Wings on Tuesday night. And through 40 minutes of that game, the Oilers weren't looking great. But McDavid just single-handedly took over that game in the third period, didn't he? Um, you know, he showed why he's he's the best player in the game. He just uh, dug in and, and um, you know, refused to, to lose and, and kind of carried, carried them to, to that win. Yeah, no, he, he made it look uh, pretty easy that night. And, you know, he picked up those two assists early in the game. But the game was still very much in the balance. I didn't like their second period at all. Really, they haven't had great second periods consistently since coming back from the, the All-Star break. But it, it, the, the third period has been a strong period for the Oilers all season. And uh, I can't think of a better one than uh, putting up five uh, on the Red Wings on uh, Tuesday night. Yeah, at, uh you know, coming out of the second intermission, you didn't know what to expect, and they just totally took over the game. Um, yeah, just they, they showed that they they still can put up points and, and uh, dominate a, a team offensively and, and kind of lock it down defensively too. Yeah, and uh, when, when you look at how the overall team was, it, it's hard to find too many guys that really had a good night <laughs> in in that game but uh, obviously it was an all-time performance by number 97 and after the Oilers squandered multiple two-goal leads uh, like I said he just took over the game in the third and uh, just kind of had that mindset that we're not losing this hockey game put the team on his back picking up four helpers in the final frame as part of a sixth uh, assist effort and the Oilers secured a much-needed win on home ice because uh you know, after losing 4 nothing to L.A. a couple nights earlier and the Kings starting to get on a bit of a roll, they really needed to get two points in the standings. And um, McDavid's third assist of the game was also his 600th of his NHL career. He became the fourth fastest player in NHL history to record 600 assists, reaching the milestone in only 616 games. And the only players to ever achieve the feat quicker than McDavid are widely considered the three greatest players in the history of the game. Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux, and Bobby Orr. He also passed Mike Bossy for the third highest points per game average in NHL history and tied Orr for the third highest assist per game average in NHL history last week. So quite a few milestones for the Oilers captain. And uh, since getting healthy around American Thanksgiving, 
McDavid has been producing offense at an even better clip than he did last season when he put up 153 points. He has 65 points in his past 33 games, which is a 162-point pace over a full 82-game schedule. He now leads the league with 60 assists this season, and he's 13 points back from Nikita Kucherov in the scoring race with four games in hand. Uh, Dursa, with 31 games remaining this season, do you think McDavid still has a shot to win his sixth Art Ross Trophy this year? Yeah, I, I definitely do. I mean, he's he's on a torrid pace right now. I would say by the end of this week, he's going to pass Nathan McKinnon um, and then only have Kucherov left to uh, to catch. Um, but I don't think that's his focus uh, this season. I, I think he's on a different level. I think it's all about winning a championship. And I don't think he cares whether or not he, he gets another Art Ross trophy to add to the trophy case. I think he's looking at the, the big silver cup. Oh, of course. And I don't think he's really ever been uh, motivated by individual awards. But obviously, when you're a player of his caliber, those are just going to come along with the wins. Like He contributes to the offense to such a great degree that... You know, he's going to consistently either win scoring titles or be in the hunt for them for years to come. And um, I, I mean, I do think that, you know, even though he said the the team aspect is most important to him, I think he still has a lot of pride and is driven by, you know, doing the, the best he can to try and win them just out of, you know, wanting to be the best player in the world night in and night out. Uh, we also just briefly talked about it earlier in the podcast about Michael Jordan. There's a guy who won. Uh, I believe ten scoring titles in the NBA as well as well as six championships. But um, do you see some of that in McDavid? That uh, the the same sort of fire that I guess Jordan had, and you know, even though he's going to win all these scoring titles, um, ultimately what he wants to do is uh, bring home a championship. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think it was Jordan's uh, second or third year in the NBA. He he won the scoring title and Defensive Player of the Year. Right. I think he's the only player that's ever done that. He, he isn't, but there's very few that have. I think there's like four or five guys that have that have conquered that feat. But uh, Really? I, I the, yeah, thought yeah. that he was the only one, but you would know better. Yeah. Uh, David Robinson. I, I can't list them all, but I know David Robinson's in that category too. Um, but but what I, I think Hakeem Olajuwon, now you got me thinking about it. But uh, <laughs> Now, is this, you said scoring title and defensive player of the year, right? Yeah, in okay. the same season. Um, and that's kind of the effort, I think, that McDavid's kind of bringing this year. Um, but he might not he might not get that scoring title, but I think he's really worked hard on on trying to be a complete player and have a strong two-way game. I think he, you know, last last season he showed everybody that uh, he can be an elite goal scorer, and he, and he definitely still is, but I think he's went back into that mindset of uh, trying to make everybody on the team better. Um, almost like uh, number 99. Um, so I think that's kind of been his focus a little bit more this year. And uh, I think that that kind of style from him, you know, fans probably yelling at him to shoot, shoot. But um, I, I think that kind of style is going to bode well. And, uh, you know, he's gearing up for a long playoff run. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, there is still part of the narrative out there because he's such a dominant offensive player that McDavid isn't good defensively. But really, he's been making strides in his defensive game the last couple of years. And this year, I think, is probably the best he's ever been. 
And you notice that he's becoming a much more physical player, too. I can't ever remember him hitting as often as he does now. And, um, you know, he'll, he'll, he's actually a pretty good sized guy, like 6'1, 193 pounds. And when you're skating as quickly as he is, he gets to these puck races and is able to knock guys off the puck and quickly transition the other way. So that's how he contributes the most defensively. And, um, even just being able, because he's the fastest player in the world, to get back and, and strip pucks on the back check and, like I said, once again, get the puck going in the right direction. So that's that's where he thrives. And, like, I don't just think McDavid has a shot to win the scoring title. I think he's actually the favorite. And some people might think that sounds ridiculous, considering that he's still 13 points back of the league lead. And um, I, I guess it's not so much that I think that Kucherov is going to dramatically slow down. I just think that McDavid is going to continue to elevate his play down the stretch. Uh, March and April are historically two of his best months for producing points. And uh, let's just say he gets eight points in those four games in hand on Kucherov. Well, then he'd only be five games or, or sorry, or five points back of, of him with a quarter of the season to go. And uh, anyone who's watched McDavid consistently over the past nine years knows that's plenty of run rate for him to uh, make up ground in the scoring race. And right now he's on pace for 132 points in 80 games uh, because remember he missed uh, two games back in November with an injury. But uh, the way he's been racking up the points over the past three months, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he hits 140 this season, especially if the power play really gets going again. And uh, Darcy, you you kind of just mentioned this, but uh, after proving that he could score 60 goals last season, uh, do you really think that he wants to push his assist total as high as possible this year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, he he's really trying to get everybody involved. In, and uh, I think he realizes now it's uh, it's about having as many people going as, as possible. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you look at how some of his line mates have been performing. Uh, like Nuge, obviously, not putting the puck in the net as much as he did last year, but uh, there are still a pretty good amount of uh, balance throughout the lineup. Uh, I think they have seven guys with double-digit goals. I'll just quickly confirm that. Uh, yeah, seven with with ten or more goals. So. Uh, and, and of course, you've got three guys who are over 20 and one who's over 30 already. Um, and, and like you said, like last season, he really established himself as one of the top snipers in the league. And uh, it's, you know, it's when it, kind of odd, I guess you could say, when a guy who's recorded seven straight 30-goal seasons and scored 40 or more goals three times isn't considered one of the best finishers in the league. But much like Gretzky, who was also an elite goal scorer, McDavid will probably always be viewed as a playmaker first and foremost. And we've seen him, like you said, revert more to his natural instinct as a passer this season because last year when he scored 64 goals and won the Rock Richard Trophy, he was averaging 4.3 shots per game. And uh, this season, that number is down to 3.3 shots per game. And uh, there's probably a few more opportunities where you'd like him to just fire the puck on net, but he is such a, a team first guy wanting to set up his teammates. And uh, I, I think McDavid would rather see Zach Hyman score 50 goals this year than putting up 40 goals himself. And, you know, when I did my season preview episode back in October, I predicted that McDavid would reach 100 assists this season. And currently he's on pace for 98 assists, which would pass Joe Thornton's mark for the most single season assists in the salary cap era with 96. 
And I think that if McDavid were to put up 100 assists, that might even be more impressive than when he had 150 points last year. Because there have been 17 150-point seasons by six players in NHL history. However, there's only been 13 100-assist seasons, and only three players have done it. So it's a more exclusive club. And while it's something that I don't think that he is probably thinking about or maybe even aware of how exclusive of a group that is, I really think that that would be one of the most impressive accomplishments of his career if he were to get to 100 assists. Uh, I'm going to guess that he'd be in the company of Wayne, Mario, and uh, man, Bobby Orr. Yep, you got it. <laughs> and uh, as to, to no one's surprise, it's it's so slanted in Wayne's favor. Uh, uh, Bobby Orr did it once, Mario Lemieux did it once, and Gretzky did it 11 consecutive times. 11 in a row, wow. Yeah. So safe to say that one isn't being touched, but uh, I mean... For McDavid to be in that group, like he he is really in the company of the all-time greats. And I have a feeling that by the time his career is over, we will think of him sort of in that hockey Mount Rushmore group with the, the three gentlemen that I just named. Yeah, it's an interesting conversation for sure. And like when you think about it, 40 assists he needs in the final 31 games. That's a little above the pace that he's currently on right now. But does it seem possible to you that he could actually do this? I'm not sure. I mean, a guy can turn around and put six up in, in one night. I mean, yeah. I, I would say, you know what, like probably in 15 games he is where he catches Kucherov. Yeah. I, I think, well, I mean, he's already ahead of him with the... Uh, I just with, mean in points total. but In yeah. points total, yeah. But... Um, you know, honestly, if, if he, if he didn't win the scoring title, but he was still able to get close to a hundred or, or over a hundred apples, I mean, I would still take that. And, uh, I mean, the fact that he's going to very likely put up back to back 130 point seasons, like we can't take this guy for granted. We are watching him right in his prime and, uh, you know, with last year, this year, and maybe the next couple, he's going to probably be at this level. And this is when, like you said, when we're talking about championships, this is when you want to take advantage of it. You want to win one while McDavid is right at peak abilities. Yeah, uh, that, I mean, that's how he puts himself in that conversation with all those other guys you were mentioning, too. And and there's, you know, number 29 is going to be uh, making a push for that, too. I, yeah. You know, today was Yager Day in Pittsburgh, but... Uh, there's no reason those two can't be kind of in that upper echelon kind of kind of talk and that's, when it's all that's said and done. Yeah, and that's really the only thing that's missing from McDavid's career because he's done everything offensively that you could ask. Like last season, the only thing that he really hadn't accomplished was a 50 goal season and a Rocket Richard Trophy. Well, he checked those two off, and he put up the 150 point season, which is. Uh, astounding and, and something that we probably didn't even think that we might see again in the 21st century. So the fact that he was able to do that is just remarkable, but there is still that, that one thing that's missing in his career and it's a Stanley cup. And, you know, we're in year nine of his NHL career, so it's time. And I, I still believe if they would have got by the Vegas golden Knights last spring, that they would have went all the way and won it. So it's a little frustrating. Um, that was probably his best path to the cup. I, I think to this point, so because there wasn't really like a, a dominant 
force standing in their way, the way like the the 2022 Avs were. Like that was a juggernaut team, and um, the Oilers weren't going to beat them. But I do feel like they would have beat Dallas in the conference final if they would have got there last year, and I think they would have beat Florida in the final as well. So Vegas was uh, their their I guess unofficial Stanley Cup final, and probably the the toughest test that. Uh, Vegas faced in the playoffs last year too. It was the best series of the playoffs too, but uh, yeah. just didn't go our way. Didn't quite go our way, but you know it, the way it's looking like uh, we might be uh, seeing those two teams match up again in the first round this year with uh, hopefully the Oilers taking that second spot so they can get home ice advantage. And uh, sticking with McDavid, he was on a new look first line with Leon Dreisaitl and Corey Perry the past two games. Dursa, what did you think of the decision to reunite McDavid and Dreisaitl in the third period against the St. Louis Blues on Thursday night? And were you initially concerned at all about Perry being able to keep up with him at age 38? Um, yeah, I, the St. Louis game, you know, St. Louis uh, looked pretty good in that hockey game. Um, and I thought we were having a little bit of trouble staying with what what had worked for us in in that 16 16 game winning streak so Nalblock kind of goes to the well and decides to shake things up and comes out with uh you know dry settle on and uh Perry with with Connor and I think it was Perry's first goal with those two and he and he scores his first goal as an Edmonton Oiler um you know can he keep up with them no <laughs> But but can he play with them? I think that's a different conversation. Um, the one thing I've noticed with him since you know um, his first his first appearance with this club is is that his timing and his passing uh, hasn't missed a beat. You know, most of the passes are right on the tape of whoever he's trying to give it to. He's he's a heady player and he's looking to make plays and he makes a lot of them. Um, and and the one thing that I have appreciation for is, you know, Zach Hyman and Vander Kane go to the net, but Corey Perry is like Ryan Smith, and he's there all the time, and you can't move him. And uh, you know, now he's got two goals in back-to-back games uh, with Leon and Connor. So, is that a long-term solution? I don't think so. But in spot duty, I, I'm I'm not offended by it. Uh, I think it I think it's all right. I think he can play with anybody still. Yeah. The boots, the boots aren't there. That that's that's you know that's obvious. But you know when when I coached uh, minor hockey, I always teach kids that you can pass the puck a lot faster than you can skate. So um, if you can put pucks on people's tape and know where to go, uh, you can be effective. You know the the very first couple games, um, he was paired with. I think Fogel and McLeod and yeah, and kind of, kind uh, and they were good. You have to put him with fast skaters like that because if he plays with another guy with slow boots, it's just going to be a, a disaster. But uh, play, play him with some fast guys who can retrieve the puck for him and get it to him in front of the net, and that's where he, I think he can be really effective. Yeah, I mean, with them, I thought he was almost like Brett Hall. He was going to quiet areas <laughs> of the ice and 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 setting up shop to to get shots away. Um, I had some good looks too. Like he had a yeah. really good chance to score in LA, but he was just robbed by uh, Riddick. But just you know, you've had a feeling one was going to go in for him eventually here, and obviously it has now the past two games. Yeah, being up with McDavid and and Drysaddle, I think he's taken more of a uh, kind of that 
get to the get to the paint and and wreak havoc on the goalie kind of uh, game. He's not going to quiet areas with them, but uh, he was when he first kind of was brought up, and maybe that was him just kind of feeling his way into playing again. But you know, I think his his tenure as an Oiler really got started in Anaheim when he uh, batted Gibson stick out of his hand so Kane yeah. could score. <laughs> and, and you know, like. Perry, the thing that I thought he would bring to the team more than anything was experience. I mean, we're talking about a 19-year NHL vet. He's played almost 1,300 regular season games and another 200 playoff games. He's won a cup. He's been to the final four times. Those are the the kind of guys you want around this team going into the playoffs, sort of like what Duncan Keith, I guess, brought a couple of years ago, a, a veteran guy who's been there, done that, and can sort of help this group you know, figure out how to get over the hump and and win a championship. What they they've been in the hunt for the last couple of years, but just haven't been able to finish it off. And now you bring in a guy like Corey Perry. Ideally, I think you'd probably want him on your third line. That's where he's going to be most effective. Like I said, with a couple faster wingers playing with him uh, or skaters, I guess I should say, as, as he's on the wing. But um, yeah, I think. In a, in a pinch, he can jump up and play with uh, McDavid and Dreisaitl. I mean, look, he's played exactly four periods with them, and he's cashed in two goals now. And, you know, players like Perry have thrived alongside McDavid in the past. He does well with power forwards who go to the net. Um, he even looked good with Milan Lucic uh, early in his tenure with the Oilers. Um, he turned Patrick Maroon into a 27-goal scorer. In 2016-17, uh, Evander Kane is, you know, more talented and a, a better shooter than either of those guys. But you know, he's another guy who goes to the net. Connor's had uh, played well with him, and now you got a guy like Corey Perry. Like, yes, he's he's not the player that he was five years ago, and he he never really was a a quick player. But like you said, he's a heady player, and this is a guy with a ton of experience and a ton of hockey sense, and he knows where to plant himself in front of the net, and he's so big that he's difficult to move. So you look at the the two goals he scored, uh, the one in St. Louis. He, like you said, he kind of gets lost in in open space, and uh, a puck takes a, a a point shot takes a bounce off a defender's stick and lands right on his tape, and he just has to kind of make a, a little move to the side and tuck it in. And then in the game in Dallas, he just literally standing at the top of the crease. McDavid makes a, a quick pass, and it's just nice little deflection past Ottinger and. Those are the kind of goals that Corey Perry is going to score for you. And uh, I think that when you have McDavid and Dreisaitl, when you have two former MVPs, and in fairness, Corey Perry is a, a former MVP too from 13 years ago. But uh, when, when you can have three players of that caliber, or two players, I guess, of that caliber playing with Perry, uh, it's a good recipe for success because they can do most of the work and they can dangle the defenders and set up these beautiful passes. All he has to do is stand in front of the net and cash in those passes, and uh, that'll make him an effective part of that part of that line. Yeah, no, in spot duty, like I think he's fine with those guys. I don't think that's probably what you want to roll into the playoffs with. But uh, for now, just uh, rack up some wins and, and keep moving forward. Yeah, and Bob Stoffer tweeted the lines from practice in Arizona earlier today, and the line of McDavid, Drysaddle, and Perry will stay together for Monday's game against the Coyotes. Uh, like I said, after watching this trio together for parts of two games now, 
Uh, would you like to see them at least just keep it going for a bit? Or do you think that this experiment maybe ends after this game with uh, Boston coming up? But I, I just think for now, ha- seeing if Perry can handle these top six minutes in case there's an injury down the road is a good decision. But yeah, just going into a, a playing one of the elite teams in the league, do you, do you think that this is probably the last game that we see it after uh, the Arizona game? I don't know. I mean, Dallas is a pretty good club and and you were able to beat Dallas with this lineup so you might you might see them push on with what they've got until it sputters a little bit and and they have a reason to try something else like uh it wouldn't surprise me either way but I I I think right now you go into Arizona and try to win that game with what you're doling out there and if it works then I think you're probably running it back against Boston and you're just not making too many serious changes until something like a wheel falls off. No, that's fair too. And uh, just what are your thoughts on the nuclear option in general? Like some people don't think McDavid and Dreisaitl should ever play together. There's others who say, oh, you can put them together on occasion, especially if you're playing a weaker team and you just think that they're going to be able to overpower them so much that it doesn't even matter what the other three lines do because McDavid and Dreisaitl are going to dominate so much that they can basically win the game on their own as long as lines two through four just kind of stay even. Uh, Would you like to see them play together, let's say, once every 10 games or twice every 10 games, or does it sort of depend on the situation? Yeah, I think it's situational. And I don't know, uh, you know, Woodcroft and Tippett and and all the way back to McClellan, um, they seem to, you know, when when there's an emergency, break glass and put them together. I kind of like going about it the other way. You know, if, if you feel you need to put them together, start that way, get a lead, and and just dominate right from the start and then if you're up by you know three four goals then you can go away from that and and make yourself even harder to match up against i I think off offense comes at a premium at times in this league i mean sometimes it seems like it's easy to score and then sometimes it seems like you're gonna have to be able to win a two-to-one hockey game so sometimes if you can have them out there you know get a get a big goal and and uh and then just try to control the game um, you do you do what it takes to win hockey games. I mean, I'm not I'm not offended when they're put together. I know some people get really up in arms about it. Um, I I think this team has changed from when they first were here, and it's gotten to be a bit of a deeper team. I mean, it's not a, a perfect team yet, but uh, it's definitely a little bit deeper. Nuge can play center, so I I don't have any problems with that. Ryan McLeod's a capable center. Um, Derek Ryan and spot duties an okay center, but I think that's an area that if you're going to pair up McDavid and, and Dreisaitl on your top line, then you, you need to address having a real legitimate either third or fourth line center. Um, and I don't think Dylan Holloway is an answer to that, but uh, you know maybe that's something you look at at the deadline. Do you think the other thing is too like Knobloch really hasn't played? McDavid and Dreisaitl together very often. I would say out of all the coaches that they've had, and there have been several in the in the past five years, he's probably played them together the the least of any of the bench bosses. When you when you do put them together, like a on this recent stretch, do you think it's more to just really get them going offensively, or could it also be to just see how the other lines respond to it? Because really, they 
the the past few games, the Oilers haven't got anything from the bottom six. I mean, Derek Ryan did score a shorthanded goal on a penalty kill, but uh, that's more of a special teams goal than than a bottom six goal specifically. So, I don't know. Could this change potentially not just benefit the the top guys, but sort of get the other guys going a little bit too, saying, okay, like we need to step up now. You know, I think there's like a a couple of reasons why why you do it. I think it's you know so Leon and Connor have some familiar familiarity with it. You know, in case you need it when it really matters in the playoffs, like we yeah. we we saw that, that that was used a little bit against LA and Vegas last year, um, where where you pair them up because you know you get a goal in in a playoff series and and sometimes one goal can really. <laughs> be be something to hang on to um like i say like offense can be a premium come at a premium so if you can get a goal and and not give up a goal then you can win a hockey game um so i think i think you do it for that reason and then yeah if 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 your other lines aren't really producing anything you know you're probably going to get some offense when you when you pair you know Connor and Leon together and sometimes it's instantaneous as soon as you give them that one shift they they score a goal so um I, I like I think- it better at home though just sorry to cut you off but I I think that if you're going to have them together at least you have last change so you can get them out there against the the lines that you want but when you're on the road in Dallas and they're such a a strong defensive team you know, putting McDavid and Drysaddle together, they're just going to match up against those guys so hard. And uh, I mean, they still were able to contribute offense. And you can, it's like they always say, you can't really stop McDavid. You can only can hope to contain him. But uh, when you can have the right matchups that you want for the road team against those guys, if you can shut down that top line, it really does make it a lot easier to win because you're basically counting on okay well we're just going to nullify um the top two offensive players in the game the best duo in the game and from then on we'll take our chances that we can beat the rest of the lineup so in a sense i guess loading up can have its benefits but it probably makes them weaker lines like i said two two three and four you know the acquisition of perry and the ability to put him up with those two kind of gives you a little bit more flexibility because he can play with them. He can contribute. And that doesn't mean Zach Hyman's up there with them. And all of a sudden your, your second line, you're coming out with Nuge and, uh, and Hyman and, and Kane, that that's a pretty, you know, forceful and puck control and good luck getting it out of the walls from, from those yeah. guys. Um, I still, you know, come deadline, and maybe this is I'm skipping ahead to what you want to talk to later. But um, if if you can get another, you know, elite right wing on this yeah. club, I mean, that would uh, definitely help a lot. Yeah, and, and the guys you mentioned, like yes, like Zach Hyman, uh, Evander Kane, you know, those are two uh, of the team's best wingers. And when you think back to some of the playoff runs in uh, 2020, 2021, before they came to town. The Oilers were a little thin on the wings. Like they did have these two elite centers down the middle in McDavid and Dreisaitl, but uh, the guys playing around them, the supporting cast wasn't anything close to what it is now. And while I think that Hyman and Kane are extremely valuable parts of this team and guys who both have 30 plus goal potential, like I said, uh, Kane's already there and 
or sorry, uh, Hyman's already there and Kane has a shot at it this year. Uh, I don't consider either one of them like drivers. You know, they they are um, excellent complementary pieces. Uh, but when you put them next to a guy like a player like McDavid or, or Dreisaitl, then they can really take off and be effective. But uh, for them to be the ones leading the charge on their own, I don't know if that's their strong suit. So, uh, I mean, I'm hoping that they're going to be able to chip in some goals tomorrow as well. But I do think that when the team returns to Edmonton for the, the game against the Bruins on uh, Wednesday, that we'll probably see the lineup closer to what uh, we saw during the 16-game winning streak. Unless there is just this great showing tomorrow where they absolutely dominate the Coyotes 6-1 to one or something like that, and the court coach basically doesn't want to change his lineup. Yeah, um, I guess the we shall see, but uh, yeah, I... You know, at home, being able to have those guys together, you can kind of work your matchups. But when when you're on the road, I agree, you don't get quite the matchups you want, and teams can kind of um, load up their, their lines to try to counteract that. But still, that's a tall ask. I mean, they are so gifted that, uh, yeah, they're hard to stop, hard to contain. Definitely. And uh, one other notable uh, change to the lineup is that Connor Brown is expected to be a healthy scratch tomorrow. And it's obviously been a very challenging year offensively for Brown, who has yet to score a goal through 44 games, though he has been a solid penalty killer for most of the season. I I will give him credit for that. But uh, however, yesterday he really struggled in his own end and uh, he was slow on the back check that led to a goal against Dursa. Do you think it's the right move to sit him tomorrow? And what do you think would be reasonable expectations from for Brown for the rest of the season? You know, I I uh, I remember playing a lot of Nintendo growing up, and sometimes your games wouldn't work, so you'd have to pull it out and kind of blow on it <laughs> and uh, turn the power off, turn it back on. The the guy needs a factory reset. Um, whether that means a, a trip down to Bakersfield and and kind of get his confidence back. Or, or a or a change of scenery. Um, it it's hard to watch because you you see him trying, and there there's there's no lack of try there, but it's just not happening for the guy. And like, I mean, he's say, hit a couple posts recently too, right? So he, I mean, he's coming yeah, close, but he, he's gotten chances, but he just can't bury anything. And and you know, it's it's all between the ears. It's all it's all mental, like. It, um, at the start of the year, I think, you know, coming back from his injury and that uh, was probably hard. He was probably a half step behind on things and timing and all that. Just not there. But, uh, I mean, I think that's been gone since about six weeks into the season. Yeah. Um, and and it's still not coming around for him. So, uh, I don't think one night up in the press box is is going to magically, you know, come. He'll come back and 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 light the lamp. I I, I don't know. I I hope he does, but uh, you know, I root for the guy because you see him trying. I mean, it would be different if he just gave up, but uh, he's definitely not doing that. So you you want him to succeed, but there's just no success coming for him. No, and and I remember he had a disallowed goal back in November or December, yeah. and. Uh, it was one of those ones where he was behind the net. He th- threw the puck out in front, and it took a bounce off. I think a defender skated and went in the net, but there was goalie interference in front of the net. It might have been 
Kane or yeah, someone yeah, who was skating right. skating through the crease and bumped the goalie. So it was taken away. But there was about 10 seconds there before the other team challenged it where the look on his face was just such a feeling of relief and the smiles to the bench and every guy high f- or you know fist bumping him down the line just looked like you know he had scored a series winning goal cuz they were so happy for him to finally get the monkey off his back and then for them to call it back it's just like oh man this guy can't catch a break like at least when it happens to Zach Hyman you know he's going to score probably the next game or, or maybe even later that same game but for Connor Brown, who's been snake bitten to this degree, I mean, uh, it's just it's so difficult to watch. And you have to remember that this was a guy who was heavily recruited by McDavid and Jeff Jackson in the offseason. Like Connor told him, we want you to be a part of this team. We think you can help win us a championship. You know, we want you to come to Edmonton. Like there were other teams interested. And that it, I know some people don't want to look at it this way, but he did the Oilers a favor coming to the team on a league minimum contract. Like, yes, he's going to get paid a hefty bonus next season, which is going to be on the Oilers cap. But, you know, we can't worry too much about what the cap is for next season. We we have to worry about the here and now. And right now, he's a league minimum player. But it's just it's a, a, so difficult that, you know, he hasn't had the season that we were hoping for. Um, you know, when, when I had the... Like uh, my season preview show again, I, I had uh, Lotzi on and uh, I had Kirk and Bob as well. And we all talked about it. I think we were all in agreement that Connor Brown was going to score 20 goals this year. And uh, I think Lotzi even had him at 25. And that seemed like a realistic total because he had scored 20 goals in the past with the, the Leafs and the Senators. And uh, he was coming into a situation now where he was going to get to play with a player like Connor McDavid. It was sort of thought that he'd be penciled in on his wing. But other than, you know, the the brief times they've played together, just he hasn't been able to get anything going. And it's it's just so frustrating. I'm sure that, you know, he's feeling it more than anyone. So I'm hoping that when he does get back in, it'll finally pop for him. Uh, but it's it's just been really tough. It, it, it almost reminds me of the year that Mike Pekka had with the Oilers in 05-06. Like, he was one of the big off-season additions along with Chris Pronger. And, um, I mean, obviously Pronger is a, a much bigger one, but Pekka just didn't have a very good regular season in 2005-2006. And then in the playoffs, scored a couple big goals. I remember one breakaway against the Ducks, and, you know, that was a, a huge goal in the series for the Oilers in the conference final. So maybe that's going to be what will happen for Brown. He'll... Uh, uh, he won't have the season that he wants, but uh, maybe he'll contribute a, a huge goal come playoff time, and we'll forget all about it because uh, you know he came through when we really needed him most. Mike Pekka got uh, Fernando Pisani playing at levels he never played before and yeah. ever again. <laughs> yeah, what a run for Fernando in uh, um, in uh, the 2006 playoffs. And he was actually suited up for the, uh, the Oilers and the alumni uh, game against the stars alumni on Saturday. It's something I really didn't know was happening until uh, a couple hours before the game. When I saw a, a local media guy in Dallas tweeting it out that they were hosting, uh, uh, right after the, the regular season game, there'd be an alumni game. And there were some guys like Luke Gazdick there, Alish Hemsky, who I believe still lives in the Dallas area. So easy for him to be a part of that one. But, what jersey uh, did Hammer put on? 
<laughs> 83. Oh, yeah. He, he was with the orange and blue. No doubt there. Good. Because uh, he, yeah. he played with Dallas, too. So He did. He did. And uh, and Craig McTavish was even out there. I, I'm pretty sure he was the oldest guy in the game. I think Mac T's like 65 now. Yeah. So that's uh you know pretty good and, and of course still the only guy out there not wearing a helmet, you know I I don't think they'll ever get him <laughs> to put one on, <laughs> but um, I mean if he's not if he hasn't put one on by sixty five yet then it's it's very doubtful it'll ever happen. So uh, I, I know this is your show, but I got to ask you a skill testing question. Okay, how many seasons in Mac T's career did he don a bucket? Zero. One. Oh, is this going to be a a reference to outside of hockey? No, no. He wore a helmet one year in his career. With the Bruins? Um, It might have been with Edmonton, but it was just one year. And then he's like, no, can't do it. And he went bucketless again. I don't know if I've ever seen a picture of him in an Oilers uniform with a helmet. I mean, I've never seen him in a picture with any helmet on. But I know he obviously went to play with... Uh, uh, the Rangers where he won another cup in 94 and then he played for Philadelphia and St. Louis after that. But uh, he started his career with the Boston Bruins. And I thought that that was going to be the, the answer to your trivia question there, that it was going to be like in the, the late seventies or something that he, he briefly tried one before, uh, you know, giving it up. So I think, uh, no, I, I didn't know that. I think there's like a whole thing on it. Like um, I think Bill Ziegler was the um, commissioner of the league. Mm-hmm. And, and he wore it for a year, and then he took it off, and then they grandfathered in uh, that everybody had to wear a helmet. But he, anyone who started seventy nine or later, I think. So, yeah, and he was just before that, I believe. But he came to the Oilers in eighty five, um, after obviously spending a a year in prison there for um, you yeah. know a drunk driving incident, but. Anyway, uh, yeah, great to still see him out there. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty cool picture. I, I retweeted it from the, the Heavy Hockey account. So anyone who wants to go look at it, uh, take, a, take a peek at it. Some, some good uh, names that you'll, you'll see there. Um, and, yeah, but just to, to lastly on Brown, it's a, I mean, we can only hope that he's going to finally bury one before the season is over. I'd hate to see him go the, the Toby Reader route and not – not even have one goal in a full season. It'd be incredible if it happened twice to a to an Oilers uh, free agent signing forward. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, may, like I said, maybe he'll cash one in in playoff time, and uh, all will be forgotten about uh, the season. All right, and uh, on Saturday, Evan Bouchard scored twice, including the overtime winner to lift the Oilers to a four-three come from behind win over the Dallas Stars. Bouchard also set a new career high in goals with 14 and recorded his 50th point of the season, becoming the first Oilers defenseman to put up 50 points in a single season since Sheldon Surrey in 2008-2009. Dursa, Bouchard is currently on pace for 22 goals and 80 points this year. I think most Oilers fans expected him to take a step forward offensively playing on the top power play unit full-time, but did you think he would increase his numbers by leaps and bounds this season the way that he has? Well, my first experience with Evan Bouchard was when he was, um, just after we drafted him, he was at rookie, like they had kind of camp. Development at, camp in the summer, yeah. Yeah, and uh, me and my mom were going to sit down to watch, and he was just skating through warm-up, and he, and he took a snapshot from... Uh, 
about the top of the circle and uh, missed the net and it hit the glass right by where my head was. <laughs> and uh, I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> um, so I knew right then and there that this kid could really fire the puck. Um, what I didn't know is that, you know, the, the overtime winner on that wrist shot, I mean, not only does he possess, a, you know, 100, 103 mile an hour slap shot, He's got a snapshot that's probably in the mid to mid 80s to low 90s, and uh, just a almost like a nuge level uh, wrist shot too. So he's got the full package. So no, it it doesn't surprise me that uh, you know he's kind of tearing it out up. The thing that kind of surprised me as uh, this season has moved on, uh, how well he's learned to actually defend. Yeah, yeah, and I think that. Like everyone sort of had an idea that, you know, 50, 60 points was possible for him. I, I think, uh, you know, some predictions even like I, I believe Lotzi had him at over 70 points uh, that he predicted on my show um, on our roundtable back in the fall. But, you know, now it looks like he might even hit 80. And there was a time when the Oilers went over 15 years without a forward who had eight or I should say almost 15 years without a forward that had 80 points, let alone a defenseman. So, I mean, it's just incredible to see what he's doing this year. And uh, I think the Oilers were very fortunate to get him at 10th overall back in 2018. Uh, Let's not forget, this is a guy who scored 25 goals as a defenseman in his draft year. So when you can put up that type of offense at 18 in the best junior hockey league in the world, you know that this kid is special. And if you can play him, with players of McDavid and Dreisaitl's ilk, then it's just going to take him to an, uh, another level even higher than that. And that, <clears throat> that's that's sort of what I envisioned him always being, even six years ago when they picked him, was that this is a guy who down the road is going to be you know, the, uh, the power play quarterback for the team. He's going to you know chip in a, a, a lot of assists just you know, by being that uh, that smart presence from the back end, but he also has a shot, like you said, that's a cannon that he can just beat uh, goalies from range. And bringing him in now to this top spot full time this year, we've seen him just reach new heights. And um, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, this isn't even the best that he ever has. Like maybe he can even take this up to ninety points one year because. As long as McDavid and Dreisaitl are at this level and, and he's playing alongside them, then I, I think his potential to grow is just even going to go up with them. I mean, this season has been, you know, amazing to watch him because you can you can watch his confidence grow by the game. Um, you know, he always was poised and, and patient with the puck, but now he's not afraid to make a few extra moves. He walks the line extremely well. Um, he's just a joy to watch. And... I don't know if it if if it should come as as that much of a surprise because, you know, in junior he, he was putting up more points than Drew Doughty. I mean, yeah. he he's he's an elite elite offensive player. Uh, it's it's you know it's a revelation really. Uh, you know, sometimes guys will do that, but you don't know how it's going to translate to the NHL because it's a completely different game and at a completely higher level. But uh, you know, he's just blossoming in front of us, and it's it's a joy to watch. Oh, yeah. And like I said, uh, the Oilers were lucky to get him at 10th overall. I have a feeling if there was a redraft, he would probably be in the top five. Like, 
Uh, Quinn Hughes probably jumps to number one on that list in 2018. But uh, you look at some of the names who were picked ahead of him. I, I think that uh, a lot of those teams would love to have a do-over and have Bouchard be a part of this. And there, there was sort of a debate there at the time. Um, should the Oilers pick Bouchard or Noah Dobson? And obviously Noah Dobson's having a, a great year offensively too this year. I still think that Bouchard is the better fit for this group because of the cannon that he has, you know, like that shot. It's something that this power play really needed. They have so much skill. They can move the puck around so quickly and make these brilliant passes to set up these one timers. But having a guy back there who can shoot the puck as hard as he does, it opens up more room down low and it allows McDavid and Dreisaitl to have more space to try and kind of work some of the plays that they like to. So I still, even if I could go back, uh, the fact that Noah Dobson is still, uh, I think five points ahead of uh, Bouchard this year, I would still take, uh, I would still take uh, Bouchard overall. I think Dobson's at 58 points and Bouch is at 50, 50 on um, the dot. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I'm going to guess that uh, Islanders have played more games, and I know uh, Hedman's four points up on Bush with 54. I know the Bolts have played five more games, mm-hmm. so uh, my bold prediction is uh, Bush will pass Hedman too pretty quickly here. Yeah, and I mean, uh, Victor Hedman at one time was the the best uh, defenseman in the world and uh, was putting up 70-point seasons himself, so... Uh, if Bouchard can sort of get into that group now, that would be massive. And uh, like I said, when, when you're playing with the caliber of guys, he is uh, not just McDavid and Drysdale, but also Nugent Hopkins and Hyman. Like you're surrounded by so much offensive skill that uh, the the points are, are always going to be there for him. But I want to go to a point you also mentioned about his defense, and maybe maybe he's not the perfect defender. You know, I always say if he can even be above average, I'll take that because. Uh, that's not what you drafted him to do. You drafted him to be a point producer on the back end. But if he can still give you average to above average defense, you know that just makes him even more valuable to the club. And I think that that's something that he has done this year. I think that he has been better defensively than he gets credit for. Yeah, I think the influence of Matthias Ekholm has rubbed off on him. I mean, there's been games where he's been the better of the two defensively too. Um, and not always. I mean... No, most of the time Ekholm is going to yeah. protect him a little bit and, and and cover for him defensively, but you know Bush still has to take care of his end of the ice. I, I will much rather have uh, Ekholm being the guy clearing the front of the net than Bouchard. I think that's an area that he could work on. But you know, positioning wise, there there has been some games where Bush is actually backing up Ekholm instead of the other way around. Um, yeah, so I think that influence of Ekholm being that stalwart, uh, steady defenseman r- has rubbed off on him, and maybe it's a little bit of the coffee effect too. Um, uh, you know, I think this team as a unit has defended pretty well most nights since the coaching changes has happened. They, You know, there's been a couple of one-offs, but it doesn't seem to stem into multiple games, and they're having success because of it. Right. And while I don't think he's going to win it, could you see Bouchard getting some Norris Trophy votes this year? Uh, I think if he keeps going, yeah, he, he'll enter that conversation. Like I say, I think, you know, I think Tampa's pay, played five more games than us. So I could see, you know, probably not in five games, but about 10 or 12, um, Bouch being right there with Hedman uh, in terms of points. 
Um, and yeah, if he keeps up, you know, the defensive side of his game, he, he's definitely in the conversation. I don't think he wins it over, you know, McCarr and Hughes, but no, uh, but there's five names on every ballot and could you even yeah. see him getting some fifth place votes here? Um, I mean, he might get nominated. I don't see him getting too many votes this year, but, uh, in the years to come, yeah, I think he's in the conversation, and there there might be a day, you know, in the in the next five years where Evan Bouchard is a Nor- Norris Trophy winner. Uh, I mean, especially if, if he ends up leading the league in points by a defenseman, that uh, that will give him a big boost. Uh, I, I just hope that playing on the same team as McDavid doesn't hurt him in that respect, because uh, you look back in the '80s, there were times when guys like Paul Coffey or Yari Curry deserved certain awards. Like you could have had Curry win a couple Selkies as the best, you know, defensive forward or uh, Coffey deserved more Norris trophies than he won. But with Gretzky just cleaning up at the NHL awards ceremony year after year, it's like, well, how many more awards can we give to an Oilers player? You know, we already have Gretzky taking home three or four year after year. So um, I I just hope that, you know, they they always talk about for McDavid, even, uh, uh, voter fatigue setting in. Well, I hope that like it's not the same where it's like they don't want to over uh, hand the Oilers more trophies because uh, you've got one guy who's just uh, like I said taking home uh, half the half the awards given out on one night. I mean, th- this year, if if Evan was right up there with with Hughes, and and uh, you know everything was kind of the same. I think he would be in that conversation uh, a little bit more because you can't just call him a power play merchant because their power play hasn't been setting the world on fire. I mean, it's still it's really, third in the league, but it's, it's not. It's, yeah, it's, it's not, not the like best what it was ever. last year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and I, I think, uh, I think Dash said that on my show uh, when I had you guys both on last spring, where uh, he, he thought, you know, he expected it to be good again this year, but can it be better than the best ever again? And I mean, maybe that was a too high of an expectation. I thought that it could hit 35% this year. And I do think that it's still possible that it could again next year. Like they're going to bring back these same five guys on the top unit. So uh, as long as they can just, figure out a little bit more of what worked last year. And of course, other teams have scouted them for a while now, and they know that they love to do the, the cross ice one time or past a dry settle. So teams are taking away that more, but now the Oilers are implementing a few other things like McDavid has been trying the, the bank shot off the name bar this year more than ever before. Like I know he cashed it a couple times last season, but you see him trying it way more frequently now. So that's probably going to be uh, something that they try to do to maybe open up a little more space. And uh, maybe that one timer backdoor uh, becomes a, a little more open for him. Yeah. Yeah. And Boosh up at the top there. Boosh up at the it. top too. Yeah. Um, you know, they're doing a little bit more of the down low and then into the slot play too. I've seen, you know, they're always adding new wrinkles into the power play to try to keep it fresh. So, yeah. And just looking at the team overall, now they're three, three and O since coming back from the break, there's been some great wins in there and there's also been some pretty disappointing losses. Uh, I mean, you, you could argue still that their most complete game that they played was that 3-1 loss with the empty netter to Vegas in their, the first game back, which ended the 16-game the winning streak. I just want to know, how have you felt overall about the Oilers in the six games that they've played in February? 
Yeah, I mean, season is a bit of a up and down. Um, you know, they started really slow, and then they and then they make the coaching change and and get hot, uh, drop a couple, and then really inferno hot. Um, go into the All Star break, come back, uh, lose a bit of a heartbreaker against Vegas, where they actually played a pretty good game. Um, you know, lose, drop one to LA, where I don't think they brought their best game. I think they might have been a bit fatigued in that one, and uh, but then turn around, follow it up. So it's kind of a, a bit of a up and down um, go here. But uh, I, I don't know. Like the rest of the way, you you want to try not to lose two games in a row, so you don't get too high and you don't get too low, and just kind of keep an even keel and try to stay healthy and kind of sharpen up and tune up for, for the playoffs. Um, it'd be nice to kind of go into the playoffs, riding a bit of a high and, and go on a bit of a streak, but it's going to be a bit of a grind here. I mean, they, they play four games this week and, and there's a lot of games down the stretch in a, in a short amount of time. Um, Almost one every other day for the next two months. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's about kind of getting your rest and, and, uh, I think I don't think they can leave every hockey game until the third period to turn it on anymore. I think they need to start getting into games and doing damage early. Um, yeah, it'd be nice to see them play with the lead a little more. You know, yeah. get a get a two one lead in the in the first period and then increase it to three one in the second and then just sort of cruise to the the finish line and, and maybe come away with a four two win. Like that's that's sort of what you want to see. Not playing in chase mode or. Uh, going into the third in a tie all the time, and then having these, you know, incredible comebacks to to pull off the victory. Like th- those are still exciting ways to watch. And I mean, that game against the Red Wings, while it was far from a Picasso, uh, man, that third period was probably one of the most exciting uh, twenty minutes of hockey that I've watched all season. Uh, you know, of course, <laughs> McDavid, like I said, having four assists on on the five goals scored will play a big part in that. But yeah, it'd just be nice to have a few more comfortable wins and just sort of have a little more control over the game. And we saw that during the winning streak too. It just felt like there were some games you went into it and you just were confident they were going to win and that uh, they when they would get up by a goal or two that you're like, okay, well, you know, the way that this team's playing and how structured they are and how everyone's in position and how great the penalty kill has been, I just don't see the other team coming back. So I want to see the Oilers play a little more like that down the stretch run here. And uh, I mean, like we talked about, there's still over 30 games to play. So they're they're not all going to be perfect. There are going to be some bad games. The Oilers are going to lose some games eventually. Uh, however, we're still... Uh, they still haven't lost back-to-back games since mid-December, so uh, that's something that they can uh, take a lot of pride in and hopefully uh, keep that trend going and uh, actually put together two straight wins now tomorrow for the first time uh, since January. Yeah, uh, you know, you, you go through and you look at their winning percentage and what they've been able to accomplish after the falling-on-their-face start. And I think uh, it's at 8-18 winning per, or points percentage uh, since American Thanksgiving. So just, I mean, uh, remarkable that they've been able to maintain that pace, like a, a 27-6-0 record in their last 33 games. Like, I'm as optimistic of an Oilers fan as you'll ever meet, and I didn't envision anything close to that. No, got to admit, I was pretty worried after that start that uh, making the playoffs was going to be 
I still never, I never doubted that they would make the playoffs. And I know people did. I know that there, there were people who said like, you know, this season's a write-off. It's an embarrassment that McDavid and Dreisaitl in year nine and 10 are in this position, blah, blah, blah. But I, for me, I just felt that, you know, this team has been a consistently strong regular season team for the past four years. They're going to figure it out. They're going to turn it around. But uh, I think I think Dryside even said it in an interview. It felt like we forgot how to play hockey for a month. Yeah, yeah. You had a team in Connor Brown's headspace right now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, obviously, a lot better time since then. And uh, yeah, when you can go uh, over three months with just uh, six regulation losses, that's that's a pretty good run. But I mean, in fairness, last year too, the Oilers only had five regulation losses in their final 39 games. So they've been playing like this pace uh, for almost a year of, you know, save for, like we said, that first month of the season when they completely fell apart. Other than that, this team has uh, been playing at a great clip. And I always felt that that was closer to the real Oilers than what we saw in October, because that just didn't resemble anything of the team that we had watched. Uh, the, like I said, the past couple of years, especially uh, down the stretch last year. Uh, okay. And lastly, I just wanted to continue on something that we started talking about on your show the other night. You already alluded to it, but that's uh, the trade targets for the Oilers ahead of the deadline. And uh, insiders like Pierre Lebrun and Frank Saravelli have connected the Oilers to several names on the trade market. But before we get into any specific players, uh, what do you think is the Oilers' greatest need uh, for them to go on a long playoff run this year? Well, I don't think my answer has really changed since kind of last the end of the playoffs last year. I think the biggest need, honestly, for this team is a new partner for Darnell Nurse. I, I like Cody CC the person. I like Cody CC as the teammate. But I just think that we need somebody that is just a, a, a lights out, almost like Ekholm is for Bouchard. Um on, on the right side to play with Nurse. I've seen too many times where he is left to do a lot by himself. And, um, yeah, uh, Nurse's play is really, like, transitioned um, this season. I, I think he's playing really, really good hockey and, and has, has been doing that for a long time. But I think there's occasions where he is asked to do more than his fair share of of the load back there. So for me, that's the biggest area of concern. Defense wins championships, and uh, you know if they if they can get him a partner that. Uh, and not to not to counter you too much there, but like yes, I I understand, especially in in how hockey changes so much from the regular season to the playoffs. Uh, defense does, you know, it, it of course has to be sharp, but you have to have attention to detail. You have to be committed defensively, but I don't think that's necessarily the way that this Oilers team is built to play. Like we've seen them the past two years. They still like to run and gun in the playoffs. And yes, neither one of those cup years or neither one of those playoff years has ended in a cup, but I just, I think that, you know, trying to change their game too much and be, you know, this stingy defensive team and, and that's going to be our identity. I, I don't know if that fits this group. Uh, they do need to still improve the back end. Like, yes, they're probably missing a top four defenseman. And, uh, you know, the team defense can can still 
be a little sharper as well. But wouldn't you say that this team is still more likely built to win a, a 5-3 game than a, a 2-1 game? Those don't happen in the playoffs, though. That's that's the that's the thing. Like um, teams teams lock it down. Goaltending becomes vital. And it if is. You, if you can, yeah, you're right. The, the the thing that really bothers me, and I think this has probably been one of Cody Cece's actually better season <laughs> as an Edmonton Oiler, but uh, some of the ill advised pinches um, from him. Um, and the, just the decision making, and and let's face it, I mean he doesn't have the quickest boots uh, in the NHL, um, so he can't recover, and and so Nurse is left trying to defend two on ones like often, and people get mad at him for laying down or or you know, the starfish and and all yeah. that kind of stuff, but that's desperation, and you shouldn't have to play that much desperation hockey. Um, as as I think what he's kind of forced to make. Yeah. Um, and I, I do think they can play a few more of those, let's say the five, three, five, four games in the first two rounds of the playoffs. I, I do agree with you that as they go further on a run and if they run into a team like a Dallas or a Colorado or even Winnipeg or in a conference final, or if they end up playing, let's say, Boston or Carolina or the Rangers in the final like yes then in in that in in a series like that as, as they're really getting to playing the best of the best teams then of course you would need to be uh, playing better defensively but um, I, I still think that this team uh, while they have shown that they can win some tighter games this season I think that we're still going to see them winning games by uh, a, a little higher scores, especially in the first couple rounds of the playoffs anyway. I mean, sometimes the series can come down to one play. Yep. A- and, That's and, you know, if you look back to what happened last year, I mean, it was March or so and, and Eichel really that killed us. Eichel's not the most shiftiest player on the ice. I mean, he's, he's a good player. He's got a good shot, but <sighs> that guy shouldn't be walking through people. Um and and I think that's the that's the for me that's the biggest area of concern. This team still has plenty of offensive firepower, whether Cody Cece's here or not. I don't think that changes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if I love the the way they matched up against Vegas last year. Like I think that there should have been some some different pairings out against Vegas's top line and different lines like uh uh you look at a guy like Ryan McLeod, he was having a, a, a pretty uh, solid, I think the de- defensive uh, game in the playoffs. And I think that that would have been the line maybe to get out there against uh, Eichel's uh, line a little more often. And uh, yeah, but when he's scoring at the way that he was in that series, uh, there dry had that first uh, great game where he scored four goals in Vegas, but Eichel was probably the most impactful for the rest of the way. And, uh, that shouldn't be happening in a series where uh, McDavid and Drysaitel are playing in it. The other thing that I didn't really love about that series with Vegas is, I think we thought that we needed to be the aggressor, and we got out of what makes us successful is you know high end skill and yeah, and kind of our offensive game and uh, you know yeah look for hits, look to play physical, but stay out of the sin bin because. Uh, 
that's mm-hmm. yeah. There, there. I mean, they had the lead in every game in that series, and I, I think back to that. They had a three-two lead in the second period. They take a couple dumb penalties, and yeah, you can argue that maybe some got missed on Vegas, and and but were called on the Oilers, and they score three goals in just over three minutes, and all of a sudden the Oilers go from having a, a three-two lead in Game Six to being down uh, four to three, and then uh, just from there it just seemed to to snowball and get worse, and they ended up losing that game and. Uh, it's just so frustrating because I, I think if they would have won that one coming back to Edmonton with a series lead, maybe they would have capped it off. But yeah, we'll we'll see how they goes. But but like you said, they they do need to play to their strengths, and I and that I think sort of goes back to what I was saying is that their their strength, uh, especially when you have this group with McDavid and Drysaddle leading the way, is always going to be to to outskill uh, the the opposition, and you just have to hope that uh, you have a goaltender in net who's going to make those saves because, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not going to come down on Stuart Skinner. He's a big reason why the team made it as far as they did last year and had the regular season they did, but obviously uh, not the playoff that he probably would have liked. Uh, let's go back to your point, though, about the 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 targets. You wanted to see an upgrade uh, for Cody Cece. For me, if it's a guy like Sean Walker, I don't know if paying the assets for him is worth it. I think that it might just be better to go with what you know. And uh, I think, I mean, there's a chance it's even worse. There's no guarantee that Walker's going to be a good fit with with a Darnell Nurse. But I think if they can get like a true upgrade where it's just universally believed that the guy they're bringing in is going to be better than Cody Cece in that spot and really help this team, then that I'm on board with that. Uh, so, if, for example, if a guy like Chris Tanev were to come available, and uh, I believe that Frank Saravelli said that the Flames are only looking for a second-round pick for him. Now, that'd be great if the Oilers could just quickly make that swap, but they, they need to make the money work, too. So, uh, a contract would probably have to go back the Flames' way, and uh, who knows, uh, there might be a little bit of a uh, an extra tax, an, an Oilers tax uh, added on to that, because you're trading him in division, and... Uh, <laughs> could be hard to sell to the Flames fan base that you know we're we're trading our best defensive defenseman uh, to the the arch rival to try and help them win a Stanley Cup. So I, I mean I don't know how much of a optics thing comes into that. Uh, I, I think that really the Flames their number one priority should be you know just getting the best offer they can for him regardless of what team it is even if it is the Oilers I mean look they've made two trades with the Vancouver Canucks this year and the Canucks are also a big rival so uh, if it is just a a little more than a second round pick I think that they should make that trade as quick as possible and uh, who knows maybe Cody Ceci goes back the other way or the Flames retain money on it but uh, like I'll I'll get your thought now what what would you think about a a Tanev coming in to this top four yeah no that's that's I think that's the move. Um, I mean, if CC's on your third pair, you, you're you're doing you're doing you're doing great. Um, and then you have DeHarnay De in the seventh. That's the seventh, hole. yeah, yeah. But uh, I mean, I, I've liked Vinny's game, so I'm not going to crap on him. But no, I think that's kind of the play. I mean, if CC's going the other way, I guess that's the way it goes. And you know, that's probably just to make the money work. And it is, yeah. You, I mean, you, they'd love to keep him. I, I, I don't want to give up Cody Cece for the playoff run. Uh, if you, like you said, if you could have him playing lower in the lineup, that would be fantastic. Ideal, ideal, yeah. yeah. But um, you know, it's going to be a money in, money out situation. The Oilers, 
have to send out a contract and maybe the other team is thinking, well, we don't want to take on a contract. So, okay, well, you know, if we have to take one back, then we're asking for more than a second round pick now. Maybe it's a, maybe it's a second round pick and Xavier Borgo or Ty Tulio or something like that. Yeah. Um, and maybe Fogel's the, the play because it's an expiring contract, but, uh, I don't yeah. know if that sweetens the pot enough for for Calgary. I mean, yeah, you're, you're probably right. There's probably an arch rival tax added in there, but uh, <laughs> yeah. I I, I kind of think that's that's the guy. I mean, um, so when you hear uh, other reporters like on Insider Trading on TSN, Pierre LeBrun mentioned four names that the Oilers have interest in uh, outside of Jake Gensel, who is widely believed to be the Oilers' number one target ahead of the deadline. And and like we talked about earlier, if you could get a a thirty goal scorer to play on Drysaddle's wing, well, that second line now becomes even more dominant. And then you're going to have two elite lines that you can put over the boards, wave after wave. Um, but yeah, if they could bring in uh, if they can bring in another defender, that would obviously uh, address the need as well. But just I'll get a thought from you on some of the forward names that are out there. Like I, I think LeBron said. It was Tarasenko, uh, Vladimir Tarasenko, Jordan Eberle, David Perron, and Daniel Sprong are all names that the Oilers have interest in. And I'm sure that there's going to be different costs for each of those players. Like I would, I'd imagine that a, a Tarasenko would cost more than a, a Daniel Sprong, but uh, maybe they only need to get a, a guy like Sprong, or or maybe even Eberle uh, would come in at a cheaper cost, and that's more worth it than paying the assets to bring in a Gensel or a Tarasenko. Just uh, among those four or five names, like who do you think would be not only a fit for the Oilers, but a fit at the right cost? Yeah, I mean, Gensel's my number one still, but... Uh whether or not he's actually going to be available because I don't think you're trading for a guy that's uh, still on the IR. So that's, that might come right down to the wire. Yeah. And I mean, he, not, uh, Pittsburgh, I don't think would be willing to trade him before the wire because they're probably still clinging to some playoff hopes themselves. And, you know, this is year one of Eric Carlson in town too. So you don't want to give up on it too quick. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's my number one. I I believe that Jordan Eberle probably still has some big goals left in him, but I don't. I I think I agree with what Craig Button was saying. I I don't think he's a top six guy on a Stanley Cup winning team. Um, if he's in your bottom six, fine. But I think the the price you're going to have to pay and and all that, you know, it it doesn't really make sense. So I, I I don't know about that. I don't know about David Perron myself either. I think Perron's a little long in the tooth. He had good success when he was here, and he's a hard player, and he's gritty. Best season of his career in Edmonton. <laughs> yeah, he's a hard player. He's gritty. His game is always the same, but it's like adding another Corey Perry, and I think at some point you, you got too much of that. So having somebody that's a little bit more mobile on the ice I think is better. I mean, I, I've always liked Perron's size and, and the way he plays the game. He's He's hard. And kind of I'm on the same page with Patrick Maroon, like another name that's been sort of floated around. I yeah. mean, at this stage, I think that's a fourth line guy. And I think you got to address, you know, if, if you're searching for a winger, I think it's somebody that can slot into the top six. So, yeah, Daniel Sprong or, or Tarasenko is, a, yep. you know, a, another I mean, Tarasenko would probably be the sniper. So. Yeah. And Tarasenko probably would be the best fit. Uh, 
I still like the idea of bringing back Eberly. I mean, we Sam Gagne has come home twice now. Uh, I was a big Eberly fan during his time with the Oilers, and you know, it didn't end on the the, the best terms, I guess you could say here after a, a poor showing in the 2017 playoffs. And Peter Shirelli and you know his uh, management group uh, made the <laughs> unwise decision that you know he's a guy who can't perform in the playoffs, and we need to get rid of him. And all he did was go on to have back-to-back conference final appearances with the Islanders and be a strong playoff performer for them. And last year, uh, helped the, the Seattle Kraken one year away from their uh, expansion season, knock off the defending Stanley Cup champions. And I think he scored an overtime winner in that series as well. So he's a big game player going all the way back to his junior career. I mean, we remember the the iconic goals he scored for Team Canada at the World Juniors. And uh, he's a guy who comes through in the clutch. And I wouldn't mind having him on Dreisaitl's right side. Like, yeah, at 32, almost 33 years old, is his best years in the NHL are, are behind him at this point. But he's still a guy who knows how to finish in tight. You know, he can really elevate the puck uh, with limited space. And uh, you put him with a guy like Dreisaitl. They did play together, too, about seven, eight years ago, um, early in Leon's career when, when Ebbs was still with the team. So there might still be a bit of existing chemistry there, putting those two back together. And uh, at least it's a guy who, you know, finishes his chances in tight. And uh, when you have a, a player like Leon Dreisaitl, who's arguably the best passer in the league, uh, he would find Everly uh, at the side of the net. And and uh, I have a feeling that he'd be a potting a couple for the team. So I would be interested in a reunion. I don't know what the cost would be. If it's the first round pick, that's yeah. that's a no. little steep. It's too much. Uh, it's too much. Like and like I said, it's going to be another time where they have to send a contract. Out. Like Warren Fogel would probably have to go the other way, or you'd get a third team involved to you know cut the salary down twice. Like Seattle retained fifty percent, and then maybe you get San Jose or Chicago involved, and they retain fifty percent again. Um, but like, I mean, I don't want to put it this way. I don't want to leave the first round pick on the table. I want them to trade it to upgrade this team going into the playoff run. Are you uh, in agreement with that? Well, I think if you're trading the first round pick, it's got to be for something substantial that's going to help you, you know, propel your propel your team forward. Yeah. And and I mean that's what they should be doing and look, when you're going into a situation where Drysdale has one year left and McDavid has two years left, this is the time when you should be moving that first round pick. Give them every opportunity they can to go on a long playoff run and hopefully win a cup. And I, I think that it sends the wrong message to those guys if you hang on to that first round pick and, and don't send it out to try and bring in something that helps the team right here and now. Because the player that they pick with that first round pick, that's going to be a late first round pick if all things go according to plan and they go on a deep run. You know, it's a player who probably at you know 20 anywhere from 28th to 32nd overall isn't helping you for four to five years they don't care about a player who's going to help them in 2030 you know like they're they're looking for a player who can help them right here in the 2024 stanley cup playoffs and i think uh if if that's the the piece that goes out the door to bring in a true upgrade on cc i'm fine with that and then maybe you move a pick and a prospect and uh, a Fogel contract or something like that to bring Ebbs back in. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if they add one forward and one defenseman at the deadline. In fact, I think that's what they're going to do. Uh, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, no, that'd be great if they could address both needs. Um, I mean, there's five million in cap space sitting in Bakersfield. That if you can do something to free some of that up too, that that would uh, that would definitely help. It would. Well, Durst, I just want to say thanks again for being on the show tonight. Always great talking to you. Uh, you're one of my favorite guys to have on the show. This is your sixth time now, which uh, ties you with uh, Michael A. Bear and uh, two other of my favorite guys uh, down in Brazil who have been on this podcast six times for the, the most appearances. So I want to uh, say I appreciate everything that you've done for this show. And uh, what do you got coming up? I think you said on uh, 97 Octane Hockey tomorrow night, you've got uh, Hey Bear and uh, Lotsberg. Yeah, so we'll uh, kind of get set for the the showdown, and I guess you know the four games that are coming up uh, this week, including the one tomorrow. Um, so that'll be that'll be a good time, and we might do a show, you know, at the, in the city with Bob and Kirk, kind of in in person as part of the heavy hockey showdown weekend. Not one hundred percent sure yet, but. Uh, yeah, no, we're cruising along. I think tomorrow is episode 41 since we started this in the summer. and Yeah, it's uh, it's coming along. That'd be really cool, man. And yeah, I, I want to thank you again for having me on your show too. And anytime you need me again, just let me know. <laughs> you betcha. We'll <laughs> definitely get you back, my man. And uh, before we call it tonight, where can people follow you? Yeah, so on the old Twitter at Mike Dursa, um, you know, the... 97 octane has the youtube channel and uh i guess tiktok is uh what all the kids are doing these days uh, we eclipsed the 400 follower mark on on there which is crazy because that you know came after our youtube channel so um tackling the new frontier yeah <laughs> yeah trying to stay young <laughs> that's hey that's awesome man well look all the best with that everyone please go give mike a follow and uh if you're not uh already subscribed to his youtube channel go there because uh, they put out great content every week i, I love listening to 97 octane hockey and uh, yeah we'll uh see you in a few days uh mike thanks again looking forward to it eric have a good night <laughs> good night man all right so for mike dursa i'm eric friesen this has been the 99 forever podcast we're out <laughs>